Hello, and welcome to Product Market Fit, a podcast for early stage founders and operators who are looking to level up their startup's growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and I'm taking some time off for the holidays, so I've got a rerun for you today. This interview was the most popular episode of the year, as chosen by you, the listeners. I'm not surprised because the guest, April Dunford, is the world's leading expert on positioning, a critical topic for startups at all stages. If you haven't listened to this interview yet, you're in for a treat. And even if you have, it's worth another listen as it's so packed with useful tips and advice. Positioning is one of the most critical and often overlooked aspects of marketing. It is the exercise of defining what your product is, what it's not, who it's for, and how it's better than alternatives. Ultimately, positioning provides the context for how the market views your product or company. Great positioning can help you rise above the noise, while poor positioning can kill even the best of products. In doing fractional CMO work for the past three and a half years, I've learned the importance of prioritizing positioning work. In fact, all of our engagements now begin with the positioning exercise, despite many a client and would-be client pushing for an immediate focus on lead gen or growth with assurances that they know their positioning. I found that skipping this step invariably leads to several wasted months of ineffective marketing where you struggle to drive leads and even the leads you do get are the wrong type of prospects every single time. Save yourself the headache and make that investment in positioning now. There's no better person to learn positioning from than April, and I highly recommend her book on the topic, Obviously Awesome. She also recently published a second title focused on the sales pitch, which is great too, and I hope to have her back on the pod to dive further into that topic. Without further ado, here's a replay of my interview with April Dunford. Hello, April. Welcome. I am super thrilled to have you on today. Hey, it's great to be here. Absolutely. So we like to start with definitions. Can you define for us what is positioning and how is it different from terms like messaging or go-to-market or other terms? Yeah, it's funny. People confuse positioning and messaging a lot. I like to think about messaging as being an output of positioning. It's one of the ways that we capture positioning, but there's a bunch of things we define in positioning. There are essentially inputs to messaging. Like if you were to say to me, April, and write me some messaging, I'd say, well, okay, sure. Who's your target customer? And what's your differentiated value? And who are you competing against? How do you win? So in my world, Positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at delivering something, some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. So encapsulated in that, we're defining who are my competitors? How are we different? What is the value that we can deliver that no one else can? And who's a really good fit for this product? And therefore, what is the market we intend to win? It's kind of the fundamental building blocks for almost everything we're doing in marketing and sales. Yeah, a key input on everything. So the title of the podcast is Product Market Fit, and that's one of the recurring themes that we're exploring. How do you see the relationship between positioning and product market fit? I have an uncomfortable relationship with the term product market fit, to be honest. When people first started talking about product market fit, I was working internally inside venture-backed startups as a VP marketing. And so you know, when this term started coming up, I'm like, so what exactly is it? And people would give me definitions like, oh, we don't know what it is, but we know it when we've got it. You can have it, but you can also lose it. And people would describe it as like, people really love your stuff. And I'm like, that sounds pretty vague. And what really drove me crazy was that people were not vague about what you were supposed to do once you had it. So everybody was in agreement on that. Once you had this mythical product market fit, which was defined as a feeling, then everybody looked at the vice president of marketing and said, 
we've got it now. Put your foot on the gas, Vice President of Marketing, and go step on that lead generation gas. And now is the time to pour gas on the fire and all that stuff. And so that annoyed me because no one could tell me what this thing was. But the moment we had it, there was this big thing I was supposed to go do. And so what I actually think product market fit is, it's you have met the necessary conditions so that the vice president of marketing can actually do that. And so what needs to happen for the vice president of marketing to actually be able to do that? Well, I need really tight definition around who loves my stuff and why. What I actually need is what we would call in marketing an actionable segmentation. So if I'm going to go pour gas on the lead generation fire, then I need a really tight definition of who am I going after and what's the value proposition I'm hitting these guys with that's actually going to win me business. And so before you have that, what you've got is this kind of vague idea, like people love our stuff. Well, what kind of people? Who exactly? And why do they love it? And how do I hit them with a message that gets them to close? And so in the early days of a product, you don't actually have that. You got a bunch of customers. There isn't really a pattern amongst the customers. You got a thesis about why you think you win, but the thesis hasn't been validated yet. But once we get enough customers through the door, we start seeing these patterns where we're like, if the customer has this system and has this many people on the team and does these three things, then we know we win there all day. Once we figure that out, then I can smash my foot on the gas and go win a lot of business. So that's kind of how I think about product market fit. If we want to do the thing that we're supposed to do after product market fit, then what we actually need is an actionable customer segmentation. Yeah. And that sounds a lot like the steps needed to create good positioning that you outline in the book. So, I mean, that's pieces of it, right? We're really understanding how do we win? Where do we win? Why do we win? Right. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you're the world's foremost expert in positioning, certainly when it comes to technology companies. How did your background lead you into this? Or if you can give us kind of that quick overview of how you got here. Yeah, I don't know anybody's ever going to follow this path, but here's how it worked for me. So I studied engineering in university. And when I finished, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I ended up getting a job at a startup in product marketing. At the time, what they were looking for is they were selling database product. And so what they wanted was somebody that knew a bit about databases. You need to be able to know what SQL query was, maybe write some SQL queries. But at the same time, part of this job was going to be going out to trade shows, doing stuff with customers and doing demos. So you had to be not afraid of public speaking. <laughs> so what they were looking for is kind of an engineery sort of a person, but not scared of public speaking, you know, and then we'll teach you the rest of it. And so that's how I got the job in that I could write a SQL query and I wasn't afraid of public speaking. So I got this job in product marketing and the product that I was assigned to was a failure. And so it got assigned to me and the idea was we were going to figure out how to shut it down. And instead, what we ended up doing was repositioning it based on some stuff I learned from talking to customers. And when we did that repositioning, we just kind of fooled around until we got it. <laughs> there was a considerable amount of luck involved in that. Then the product took off. Everything's going great. We got acquired. I ended up at the big company and my boss quit after the acquisition. They put me in charge. And even though I had no business being in charge of a marketing department, and they gave me a bunch of other crappy failing products and said, hey, you should do that repositioning thing on these new ones. Then at that point, I was in a bit of a panic. I was like, well, I'm in way over my head in this job. I don't know 
nothing about positioning. <laughs> Not like a position to think, but we didn't even do it the way the marketers should do it, I'm sure. So I embarked on this kind of panic self-study, reading a lot of books and having coffee meetings with smart marketers that would give me some time and going back to school, taking a bunch of classes. And what I discovered was that positioning was this really fundamental concept, but there didn't seem to be an accepted methodology to do it. And so in the years following that, I thought that was an interesting puzzle to solve. Eventually, I worked out my own way of doing it. And towards the end of my career as an in-house marketer, that's why you hired me. If I went in and had the interview with the founder or the CEO, if they thought they had a positioning problem, I could talk articulately about, well, it's this is positioning and this is why it's a problem and here's how we're going to solve it. And I've done it five times already, so I could do it with you. So that sort of became kind of my specialty towards the end. And then seven-ish years ago, I decided I wanted to try something new. So I made the switch to consulting and now I do consulting and all I do is positioning work with tech companies. So here we are. So you've done that VP of marketing role in-house seven times now and worked with probably 200, 300 companies on positioning at this point? Yeah, as a consultant, a couple hundred, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like an in-house marketer, positioning is not a thing you're doing every day, right? And so you're only repositioning something if it really needs it. And if you worked at a company for five years or six years, you might go through a positioning exercise once, maybe twice, right? It would be really unusual if you did it three times in five years. That would be crazy. So if you think about the typical career of a marketer or even a founder or a CEO, you might be involved in a positioning thing at most a handful of times across a career. So the neat thing about being a consultant that focuses on this is I really get to get some reps in. <laughs> and so there's a bunch of stuff that you can see as patterns when you've done it a couple hundred times that you would never see in the normal course of a career. So that's been super interesting for me. I've had the privilege of being able to go really deep on this particular thing, even at the beginning of my career, I thought was super, super interesting. So that's been a lot of fun. I can say from my own experience as a fractional CMO and coming in, oftentimes the charter is just hit the ground running with lead generation or market expansion. That's and what everybody wants. Sprinkle that magic marketing pixie dust around and get the revenue going like this. Exactly. But what I found is that when we skip the step of ensuring the positioning is there, it always comes back to three months later, we drove a bunch of leads and none of them converted. We're What's pouring the water into the leaky bucket. Exactly. So now I'm very adamant about, we start with ensuring that we are very clear about what the positioning is before we go out and yeah. then do anything with regards to lead gen. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think good, smart VP marketing, if you came in new uh, off the street as full-timer, you'd be doing the same thing. You'd be kind of feeling it out. Do we need to work on this first before I get blowing my brains out over on lead gen? Because right. <laughs> if it's bad, then I could be doing the world's most perfect, amazing lead gen, but it's not going to produce what everybody wants it to produce. Exactly. And we talk about, especially with early stage startups, you know, the value of pivoting, right? Startups are looking for that product market fit and oftentimes they have to pivot, but a reposition is really the easiest pivot that you can do. It's much harder to pivot a product and there's a lot of success stories. And I yeah. love you saying that because you know what? I've had this thing and I hear it mainly from agency people, not so much from marketers that are in-house, but sometimes you'll hear this from agency people and they'll say this thing, product's easy. Like the easiest thing is just copy a feature. You've got tech and anybody can copy it. And I'm like, 
Are you kidding me? Their product's the hardest thing. And then they'll usually follow that up with, but if you got a story that's really differentiated, I'm like, oh my God, do you know what is literally the easiest thing? Changing the copy. Change the copy. That's super easy. Change the messaging, change the packaging. Making yeah. it true on the other hand. <laughs> but yeah, I was listening to a podcast the other day and the agency guy said, well, sometimes we go in and the product is not very differentiated. So what we do is we just create a story that's really compelling. And then it's product's responsibility to just make the story true. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. cuckoo banana land, if you ask me. Anybody who's worked anywhere close to product would faint. The marketer's talking like that and like, just make up this story and engineering will just woo, make it so. Yeah. That's just banana town, in my opinion. But yeah, product is hard. <laughs> right. And the best positioning won't be effective if the product can't catch the checks that marketing's writing or sales writing. That, that seems obvious to me as well, right. but I don't think that's obvious to everybody. Right. So let's get into some of the tactical components of positioning. What are some signals that indicate that positioning might be off at a company? Yeah. So I get asked this question a lot and what people want is metric, right? Like when this metric starts going out, that's when we know it's bad. And the problem is we all have different baselines, right? So if I don't know the baseline, I don't actually know. And weak positioning kind of gets you across the whole funnel. It gets the wrong people coming in and then people are dropping out because they don't get what you do. And then sometimes people are making it through that shouldn't make it through and then they churn on you. And so it's really hard to have a metric, but how I used to do this just in a very practical way. If I got hired as VP marketing, my first thing was, okay, I don't want to do any lead gen stuff until I figure out whether or not the positioning needs some work. When I was always working B2B and we always had a sales team. So I would just listen in on sales calls and you can hear it in a sales call. It sounds like this, the customer gets on, your rep is on, your rep's doing a good job pitching. There isn't obviously anything wrong with the way the rep is pitching, but you'll get a few slides into it and the customer is looking all confused and they'll do this thing where they'll go back up, back up, back up, like go back to the beginning, just go back to the beginning and pitch to me again. <laughs> and there's this like something missing. And you know, cause you checked this out before you took the job, you have happy customers that love this thing that are like, you will pry it from my golden fingers. I love this thing so much. But a new prospect coming in is like, I don't even get what it is. They're super confused. You'll see things like, the customer comes in and they think they get it, but they don't. They'll say, oh, you're just like Salesforce and you're, just, you're nothing like Salesforce. So they're comparing you to a thing that you aren't. That's really problematic. And then what you get is the rep will be like, no, 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 let me go back to the beginning. <laughs> and then the rep will be going back. And almost the worst one you'll hear is where the customer gets the pitch. And again, the rep's doing a great job. But they get to the end and they're like, I get it. I get what you are. I get where you are in the market and stuff. I just don't get why anyone would pay for it. Why wouldn't I just do that with a spreadsheet? Why wouldn't I just use my accounting package for that? And that's where you got this situation where people get it, but they don't understand the value. Like the value is lost on them. What I would do is if I heard that stuff in there, then I would say there's a gap between what your super happy existing customers know is amazing about your stuff and what people understand in a sales call. And we should be able to close that gap with better positioning. And if I was hearing that in sales calls, then I'd be pushing the team to at least look at it. Let's at least check in on it and see whether or not there's something we can do to improve it. Right. And like you mentioned, there's no one particular metric. You can see symptoms of it throughout the funnel, low click-through rates, low 
conversion rates, low close rates. Well, sometimes uh, you have high click-through rates, but then they drop out later, right? Because <laughs> right? it's the wrong people. They think you're this, and then they get halfway through, and they're like, oh, shit, you're not that. And they dump out. So it's like your metrics are all kind of meaningless. Right. You touched on something important, which most B2B deals, not most, but a significant portion are lost not to a competitor, but to inaction, to yeah. a spreadsheet or them not choosing anything. That's also a signal of the positioning doesn't convey the value or at least the urgency of that value enough that people are actually willing to put the credit card down, right? Yeah. Sometimes what you can have is really good positioning. In, and what I mean by that is really well-defined positioning. Like here's who we compete against. This is how we win. This is our differentiated value. This is who's a good fit for that. And then we fail at the storytelling piece of it. So you come in and you talk to this founder and the founder's got it. And you're like, that positioning sounds really good. I don't get why that doesn't work. And then they send you the sales deck and you're like, oh, because the customer can't figure out how you compare to everybody else. And so I see this a lot in tech companies that marketing's doing a not bad job of positioning the thing, but then customer comes in and the customer's comparing you to their status quo thing that they're doing, but they're also got a short list of companies that kind of look like you and are kind of saying the same thing as you. And then the rep, they get into the first sales call and, you know, there's a button on your site that says, give me a demo. They get into that sales call and that's all they're getting, man, is a demo. And so the sales rep is basically just doing a product walkthrough, feature, 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 feature. And so all of a sudden we've lost that positioning. There's no story there to say, why pick you over the other guys? And so sometimes what you've got is the prospect gets into the sales call and all they're seeing is a bunch of features and they're not entirely sure how the features translate to value. They're not entirely sure whether like, do the other companies have those features too? Are these differentiated or not? And they're not entirely sure, how should I make a choice here? And that's where we really risk losing the deal to no decision. Because if the customer can't confidently go to the economic buyer, which is usually their boss, and say, I recommend we buy this for these reasons, then it's easier to go to the boss and say, you know what, let's not do anything right now. Let's just kick the can down the road. We'll make the decision next year. And so I think we're losing a lot of deals, even when the positioning is good, because we failed to translate that positioning into a sales pitch that helps a customer make a good decision. Right. Good point about the B2B buying process. Oftentimes the person that's doing that diligence, who's on the other end of the sales call is doing it on behalf of their boss or has to go to somebody internally for approval, whether it's their manager or it's the CFO and they have to make a case for it internally. And our job is to arm them with the right messaging that makes it clear that internally for them, that they're making a good decision. Nobody wants to say, hey, I'm choosing this company because they gave me an Amazon gift card or, or flew me to a golf right, course, or, right? You know, <laughs> their logo is purple and purple speaks to me. Exactly. Yes. That doesn't <laughs> like work. That's in, not how uh, we make decisions, right? right? You mentioned storytelling. So can you give me an example or two of companies that were struggling, but were able to find success by repositioning? Yeah. There's a handful of ones I could talk about. But one of my favorite clients, and I worked with them a while back, but the story has evolved a bit since then, but are these guys in California called Postman. And so what I like about them, the shift in their positioning is when they first started, there was this idea that they were an API testing tool and they kind of started there. 
And then they kept adding new functionality and you know, broadening out what you could actually do with the platform. And they have kind of a product-led growth motion, right? So anybody can sign up for this thing and individual developers can start using it. But the sales motion on this thing is that enough people inside the company start using it and sales going to come in over top and it tell this story about why should you standardize on this tool across the whole enterprise? And so at the beginning, people were very confused about what exactly is Postman. And even the end users individually would say, well, I just use it for testing, or I use it for documentation, or I use it for API delivery. And so what are all those things? And each of those individual functions, they have different competitors, right? So if you're just looking for a testing tool, it would look like this. If you just want to do documentation, here's what else you would look at. And then there are other things that were sort of like in the ecosystem around APIs, is this the same as a gateway? And how is that different than a gateway? And then to make everything even more complicated, if you looked at the way Gartner Group was talking about the space, it was very unhelpful to Postman <laughs> because they, you know, they sort of saw gateways as being a separate thing. And that was the only thing. And Postman is obviously not a gateway. In fact, they just play nice with a gateway. And so they go in to pitch Gartner and Gartner was a bit like, I don't know what bucket to put you in because that, that bucket doesn't exist. And there isn't anything on the market that looks like you. And so at the beginning, they fooled around with different ideas. At one point, you know, they tested out talking about it like an API collaboration tool. So it was a tool that that different people in the organization, the people writing the APIs, the people documenting the APIs, the people testing the APIs could all collaborate on an API together. But that was often confusing because people were a bit unsure. So where do we build the API? People got this idea that the API was all done and then we did stuff to it. And so in the end, they shifted the positioning around what they really are is a tool for the entire API lifecycle. So from building the API, testing the API, documenting the API, making the API available to people to consume it. And so what they really are is an API development platform that encompasses the full lifecycle. And what I like about that positioning is that once they had it, it felt like, of course, that's what they are. What the hell else would it be? And I think there's something about great positioning that it feels like that, where everyone goes, that of course it is that. You'd have to be a dummy not to think that at the beginning. But there was a journey to get there. And then I think they do a really good job of storytelling around that as a company. I'm basically telling the story, like, why do we need a thing for managing the whole API lifecycle? And so they do a really good job of talking about what is the problem with having all these different tools for different stages of an API lifecycle? And what is the impact of the API at the end of that? If you do it that way, what you get is really low quality, poor performing APIs that are very difficult for end users to consume, which is actually really bad for your business if you believe that APIs are important. And so they have this really nice storytelling thing where they're talking about what does an API first world or API first products look like and kind of explaining that vision of how you could get to that. And then here's the solution that actually does that. Yep. After the fact that it's true for startups and innovation in general, after the fact, it looks obvious, but at the time it was certainly not obvious, but is that, you know, where the title of the book comes from, obviously awesome that, you know, once you get it right, then it becomes obvious, right? Yeah. That was kind of the idea. So let's talk about the book for a bit. I really uh, enjoyed it a lot. I highly recommend it to marketers. Thank and you. It was a super pain in the butt to write. Like, I feel very happy whenever people say that they like it. I'm like, okay, that was not a waste of 
No, I, I truly do. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the podcast because I, I read <laughs> a lot of marketing books and business books. There's a lot of fluff and there's no fluff in here. It is extremely tactical. It's funny at times and it's an easy read, but it really breaks it down into a methodology that anybody can follow. And, and I like that a lot. Um, we're not going to go through the whole book here because people should get it and read it and do that on their own time. But I, I do want to dive into a few things that really stood out to me in the book. So first of all, Within the positioning framework that you've created, you recommend starting with the customers that love the product, right? And a lot of people think about starting with the competitive landscape or the product often. Why did you choose that as the starting point for a good positioning exercise? Yeah. Again, this comes a little bit from my B2B background. Where you really want to start with is what do we want to position against, right? So who are we competing with? But here's the problem with that in B2B is almost every company I ever worked at there was a handful of customers that were just bad. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Customers that we wish we never closed, man, but they, they, they pay us a lot of money. So we can't just get rid of them, but we wish we never closed. And if we didn't sort of take them out of the consideration set at the beginning, then we would have this discussion. We'd be trying to talk about competitive alternatives and someone would say, oh, but what about Walmart? We competed with something different at Walmart and it is this weirdo edge case, whatever. And then we'd have a big fight about that. And so what I really wanted people to do is to take that handful of weird edge case ones and put them over in the parking lot and say, when we're going to have this discussion about competitive alternatives, Walmart doesn't count. <laughs> we're just going to put it, just X them out and say, they're weird, they're special, they're whatever. We kind of wish we didn't close them. Let's not count them. And so what we want in our minds are the ones that are a good fit for us, that using the product the way it was intended to use. I don't have a strict definition of that, but what I'm really trying to say in that step is let's not get into a fight about the three or four weird edge case ones. Like, and often in B2B companies, it'll be your biggest customer. <laughs> I worked at a company where we had about 2 million revenue and we had six or seven customers and one of them was Allstate and Allstate accounted for a million of that 2 million, but they were a terrible customer. We would never close a deal like that again. The use case was totally weird. They treated us like a custom development shop. And we basically wrote Allstate on the board and went, went <laughs> and then this whole exercise, we're not talking about Allstate. They don't count. We're talking about everybody else. So that's the first step. If I ever go back and do a version two of that book, I think I'm going to write that step better because it's not even so much. We don't want to have to define who a good fit customer is at this point. We're going to do that later in the process. What we really want is when we get into the meat of it of, who do we have to position against? I don't want to count all the weirdo competitors that are on the list, which maybe even pay us a lot of money, but we don't want to position for that because we are never going to close another deal like that again. Right. So the great customers are the ones that close quickly. They're using the product. They refer it. They like it. They refer it. They like on a gut feel level, you'd be like, if I had a pipeline full of people that looked like this, I'd be super happy. And that's it. I don't want people to like, well, what's the definition and how do we define it? We'll figure that out later. All I'm trying to say is let's take the bad fit ones out. Let's put the good fit ones in our mind. Okay, now let's talk about competitive alternatives. Right. And I know that you start with talking with sales, especially when you work with B2B companies that have internal sales, but part of the process 
includes a customer discovery phase where you're talking to customers, doing outreach, any technical device there about how do you get customers to talk to you in a B2B setting? How do you do the interview? When are surveys enough? Any advice there? Yeah. So I say this a lot as kind of a controversial thing to say. If we are in a B2B company and we have salespeople, we often know a lot about customers. We know who they compare us to because a good salesperson is going to figure that out. We know what the status quo is in a deal. We know who else we're competing with. We generally understand why they picked us and why they didn't pick the other guys. So in a normal situation, if the product is in market and we've sold enough of it, we kind of know that stuff. And we can literally jump right into a positioning exercise without doing a big customer research thing, in my opinion. Now, if I had a zero touch sales model, could I do that? Absolutely not. Because <laughs> we wouldn't know anything. We would just be guessing. And this happened to me a couple of times when I was the VP marketing. I have a sales team that maybe wasn't that on the ball. <laughs> so I had one in particular where there was a long time VP sales there. And he told me stuff that I was like, you know what? I'm just not sure that's true. And we're going to have to actually go and validate that this is true because I'm not really sure the salespeople are giving me what I need here. And so in those cases, I would be trying to get customers that closed somewhat recently. And the person I'm trying to reach out to is the champion in the deal. Very important. I don't really care what end users think. I don't care what the economic buyer thinks. The champion is the person that got this deal done. So I really need to talk to the champion. If the deal has closed somewhat recently, usually you can get the champion on the phone as long as they fully understand that this is not a sales call. So usually I do the pathetic damsel in distress thing where I send them an email out and say, I'm the brand new VP marketing. I'm an idiot. I don't know anything. I really need your help. If you could just give me half an hour, I just want to ask you some questions. This is not a sales call. Pretty, pretty pleased. That usually get me a few. <laughs> Sometimes your sales rep has a relationship with the champion and you can go through them and get the meeting to happen that way. And again, if the deal is closed somewhat recently, usually the customer will say yes, if it's B2B and whatever. And so once I get the customer on the phone, then what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to recreate the decision-making process. So I'm like, take me all the way back to, this is a bit like a jobs to be done interview, right? Take me all the way back to what were you doing before? What was happening? How did you do that? And then you woke up one day and decided you couldn't keep doing it that way. Why? What was happening there? Like, was it growth or was it somebody new got hired or was a mistake made? You want to know what that trigger is that started the purchase process. And then once you did decide you were going to do something better, what did you do? to look at other solutions. Like, how did you make a short list? Did you have a list of criteria? Who did you talk to? What did you look at? And then who ended up on the short list? And so you really need to understand who do we get compared to? And then you picked us. So why'd you pick us? And then the other question that I like to ask around that is, you didn't pick the other guys, why not them? And sometimes that's a terrifying question because it turns out we didn't win the deal because we were so great. We won the deal because the other guys messed up. Yep. <laughs> you yep. want to ask that question. That's a great question. Uh, and then the other question I always like to ask, just as, out of curiosity from a positioning perspective was, you've been using the product for a little while now, so is there anything surprising? Is there anything, anything good or bad, surprising? And that's just kind of a test of, we promised you this. You thought you were getting this. Did you get something you didn't think you were getting? <laughs> how does, how does the reality line up with what was right. promised? Yeah, exactly. So those are the interviews I would do. I've done that several times. In a good sales organization, 
your sales reps know the answers to all those questions. Yep. And so I don't necessarily have to go get it, but occasionally I've got, like in this case, it was like all the reps were new. The only person that had any experience was this VP sales who between you, me and the fence post got fired three months later. So he was kind of not the best. And so I wasn't getting the answers I needed out of sales. So I actually had to go to the customers and go get it. That's super helpful. I love that. Is there anything else? So thinking about the product-led growth motion, companies that don't have internal sales teams, besides for needing to do that exercise and talk to customers because you don't have salespeople to talk to, is there anything else that would be different in a positioning process for a company like that? Well, most of the stuff that I work on is B2B and there's a salesperson there because this product is a considered purchase, which means I didn't just pick it like shoes. I didn't just walk in a store and say, oh, I'll try these ones. There was somebody got a sign to buy the thing. They built a short list. They had to justify it to a buyer, blah, all this stuff. So if you think about product like growth companies, I think Postman's a good example of this. The users that come in at the front end of that, which is a very product like growth motion, a lot of those users, that's not really a considered purchase. They're kind of using the first thing they come across or they're using the thing that's free or they're using the thing that their buddy kind of told them about. It's not super considered because it didn't cost much money or any money. And so the way you make a decision there is kind of different. Now, that's very different than what happens when the sales rep comes in over top and is trying to sell somebody at the enterprise side that says, oh, let's standardize a postman across the whole thing. That is a highly considered purchase that with a very different champion persona buyer up there. So I don't know. I think people need to think it through on the product-led growth side that, you know, I think awareness matters a lot and you need to be in the places where these people are looking when they decide they're going to try something out. And then you need to make the product do the job of positioning, making sure that people understand the value of what you do, but the product is going to do that, not the sales rep. But then often we have this enterprise sale up over top and that's, different value proposition, different buyer, different different positioning completely, actually, up there. You, you make a really good point around the entry point into a PLG motion intentionally is low friction, right? So it's almost like an impulse buy. We want to just get you in there, experience the value quickly as possible, have the product do the work. It's not necessarily a considered purchase down there. Right. It's like all the time I'll sign up for something because it was featured on Product Hunt and it looks cool. And it's like, oh, I'll check it out and never use it again, right? Thinking about some of the PLG success stories. I was just listening to Lenny's podcast and he put out a statistic that Notion hit 10 million in ARR before they hired their first salesperson. And Miro was at like five or 7 million in ARR before they hired their first salesperson. So you can grow to a significant scale with that PLG motion. Yeah, but it's a completely different process. Absolutely. Absolutely. It really depends on your business and how big is the size of the deal. It's one thing to sell a thing for a hundred bucks. It's another thing if I'm selling a thing for 20,000 bucks, well, now I got to get some approvals. Now I got to go to my boss <laughs> and then my boss is going to have questions, right? I can't just say, oh, I saw it on product hunt. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of our audience's early stage founders, how is positioning different for startups that are at the earliest stages, even pre-product market fit versus after? I know it's something that you and I talked about when we first met. Yeah. So I really think that early stage founders are maybe worrying about positioning too much. 
if that's possible, but I think it is possible to worry about it too much. So what I'll get often is really, really early stage founders. They haven't even released anything yet. They're just releasing a couple customers and they'll be like, oh my God, my positioning is so weak and I need to have it super tight. And I actually don't think you do. What you have in the early stages of something that's not released yet, or it's just been released is what you should have is a positioning thesis, right? So you did your customer discovery and your thesis is like, we think this is who I compete with. And we think this is what makes us different. And this is the value we can deliver. No one else can. That's our guess. And we think these kind of customers are really going to love it. And therefore, this is the market we're going to win. But we don't know, right? It's just our best guess. And my experience having launched 15, 16 products in the market is we're never right. Maybe other people are right. Maybe I suck, but we're never right. And sometimes we're really wrong. Sometimes we're just a little bit wrong, but it's enough to impact the positioning. So towards the end of my career launching products, the way I handled this was we would have the positioning thesis. We would write it down and say, this is it. This is what we think we got, but it was internal, not external. And when we launched it, we would deliberately keep the positioning kind of loose. So here, now we're going to get to my terrible analogy that I always use, but it's the only one I got. You designed a fishing net and your thesis internally is a tuna fishing net. We built it for catching tuna, world's greatest tuna fishing net. Now I could launch it and say, this is what I got, world's greatest tuna fishing net, but maybe it doesn't work. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. And if the tuna fishermen all come and try it and it doesn't work, then what? I don't know. I learned nothing, right? All I learned was tuna failed. And so instead... I think a better way to do it is to launch it with this kind of mushy positioning and just be like, you know what, man, it's a net for fish, all kinds of fish, big fish, probably, I don't know, man, try it out. And so I'm going to have to hustle around to get a first wave of customers anyway. Let's keep it kind of broad. And we let lots of fishermen try it, lots of places, and let's just see what they pull up. Right. And maybe what we discover is, oh, look, it's a grouper. The thing is full of grouper. And who knows? Because we didn't really think about grouper. We were thinking about tuna, but it turns out it's an amazing grouper fishing net. And now, once I know that, then I can tighten it up and go run at the grouper fishermen. And we'll worry about getting the tuna fishermen later. And so, in a lot of the stuff that I've launched, we would call it a pre launch or early customer experience or however you want to position it. And we'd put it out and get a first round of customers using it to try to validate the thesis. Did we end up competing with who we thought we were going to compete with? Are the people that love this thing, the people we thought who were going to love it, or is it kind of different? Do they think the value is what we guessed it was going to be, or is it something else? And so once I've figured that out and I've tested the thesis, then I can tighten it up and go run at it. It's going to feel bad in the early stages because mushy positioning feels bad. It feels bad when you're pitching it. It's just like, oh, I got a net thing. Like you sound kind of dumb and everybody's like, oh, this is painful. But it usually doesn't stop you from getting the first wave in anyway. So you're not trying to sell everybody at the beginning. You're just trying to get a first wave in. And usually you're going to pull on your connections to do that anyways. It's going to be people in your network, people you can get to easily, people that are just trying it out because they're just people that like to try stuff out. It's usually not going to stop you from getting that first wave anyway, and then get the first wave and then figure it out and then tighten it up and then go run at it. Right. So to keep the positioning intentionally vague early on, so you allow the market to give you that feedback. So extending that analogy, you have segments of grouper fishermen and tuna fishermen. What are your thoughts on positioning for products that have multiple segments? So let's say it works for both, right? There are lots of products. Think of like Notion. We just talked about them. They're used in so many different ways. So how do you position a product that 
can be targeted to multiple segments are also multi-sided marketplaces, right? So you you have to be targeting. Well, well multi-sided marketplace is a different thing. But let's start with ones where there's multiple segments. Like I spent half my career selling databases. This is a fundamentally horizontal product. You can use a database for pretty much anything. When I look at things like Notion, I think about it that way, right? So when we were talking about the value of a database, there was common value across all those segments. And so we weren't trying to say, oh, it's this for bankers and this for insurance companies and this for whatever. That would be nonsense. We'd have 9,000 different positionings and it wouldn't make any sense. So instead, we were talking about performance and openness and how easy it was to integrate into the stuff you were already doing and things like support and professional services and all the cool stuff we could do. And why would you pick our database versus other databases out there? I think that's fine. I think people get worried when they have multiple segments that are buying their stuff and they'll be like, oh no, I got the retailers over here and I got the bankers over here and shouldn't that positioning be different? But if you've got a single product that's serving both those segments, chances are there's common value. And so what you're doing is positioning around the common value. So I worked at a company once where we had this thing, it was like this data integration thing. But what it really was, was a hot backup recovery thing. So I got hired as a VP marketing. And when I did the analysis on the customer set, we had kind of two big segments. We were selling a lot to retailers. We were selling a lot to utilities. This is pretty different. <laughs> so you're like, oh shit. But if you scratched at it, the use case felt kind of different, but it was the same. So if you looked at what the retailers were doing with it, it was basically all about making sure the cash register never went down because the cash register goes down, we, we can't sell anything. And if you look at the way the utilities were using it, it was all about making sure the light stayed on. <laughs> so it was the same thing. And actually the commonality across it was we could do this hot backup, whatever thing, when you had lots of different systems talking to each other, if you had a real mess in the back end, And in particular, there were a couple of systems that we could do that we could support that nobody else did. And if you looked at those systems, those systems came from IBM and IBM at the time when they sold them, sold a lot to utilities and sold a lot to retailers because it was sort of designed for not super, super big companies, but smallish companies. So on the surface of it, it looked like that's pretty random. I got retail and utilities, but when we scratched at it, it was like both of them were doing hot backup in a highly heterogeneous environment that included this one or two weirdo IBM systems that only retailers and utilities had. And all of a sudden the thing made sense. So what we had was this horizontal positioning. Now, when you looked at the way we did the sales pitch, the value props were exactly the same. So 90% of the sales pitch was the same, except when we got into talking through a customer example, if I was talking to a retailer, the customer example was Tiffany's. And if I was talking to uh, utility, I don't know, I think it was Emerson Electric or something. I can't remember. Yeah. A lot of companies will have on their website, the general messaging on the homepage and then have a solutions drop down where it's like by industry with kind of drilled down messaging and case studies, things like that is, I think that's aligned with what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think sometimes you need that and sometimes you don't. I think people go a little bit too crazy worrying about like, and then you look at those 
vertical pages and it's the same value points. It's the same stuff. It's like they changed three words. I'm like, why, why do you have all these separate pages? Well, sometimes for SEO reasons, but that's another story. So an another piece of the process that you outlined of choosing the market that you're in, the market that you select often gives the customer a lot of information about you that they have kind of preconceived notions about the market and definitions about it. So can you talk about why is choosing the right market so important and also the three styles of positioning within a market that you introduce in the book? I think market category is kind of a really misunderstood concept now. I also think there's a lot of noise about market category that I think is confusing to companies. I like to think about the market category as the context that I position my product in that helps them understand my value. And what it does is it kind of takes a customer that doesn't know too much about our stuff and it sort of places them on the path that leads to our value. But that's all it does. It doesn't replace my messaging. It doesn't replace my sales pitch. It's just a starting point, right? Now, a good market category does that. A bad market category takes a customer that doesn't know too much about our stuff and it points them in the wrong way. And then marketing and sales has to go, oh, no, no, we're not. A, no, we're not that. No, no, no. That's hard. Right. So the minimum thing that your market category has to do is no harm. Right. Like, don't get them pointed over here. Better that they're a little confused than to think they know what it is and they're wrong. So we want to get them sort of pointed in the right direction. If we think about that, there's kind of three ways that people position in categories. Sometimes you're positioned in a category and you're positioned in such a way that there's no qualifiers. If I come to you and say, I'm a CRM, full stop, that's it. Then I've just declared war on Mark Benioff. I'm taking that guy out. We're CRM for everybody, man. So the automatic next question is, how are you different from Salesforce, right? Right. Normally, we don't do this. Like Even when I was at IBM and we're a great big company and we absolutely dominate a whole bunch of markets, we would never launch a product where we were just dead at market leader because it's really, really hard. But occasionally, you're number two behind the market leader and you decide to make a run at it because the leader's got a weakness or whatever. You're coming up. That's usually when it happens. You're almost there anyway, and so now you're going to take them on. The much more common way to do it is I'm a little company, and I'm trying to get into CRM space. My ultimate goal is to take out Salesforce, but I can't do it right now because I've got 15 people, <laughs> and my product kind of sucks. So what I'm going to do is carve off a piece of the market where I can win. And that's actually pretty easy to do because Salesforce can't win all over the place. And there's all kinds of stuff they're never going to build because only this little corner of the market wants it. And so you can carve off a piece of that and say, well, I'm going to be CRM for lawyers, or I'm going to be CRM for fast food restaurants, or I'm going to be CRM for small, medium construction companies. And there's a whole lot of specific stuff you could build into that, that Salesforce is just never going to build. And maybe you win there. So usually when you have that strategy, your intention is not to stay there forever. It's just your beachhead. That's just where you land. And then you're going to, let's say I start with the fast food restaurants. I'm going to start there and then I'm going to do sit down restaurants. Then maybe I'm going to do things that are adjacent to restaurants and blah, blah, blah. And eventually I get so big, then I take Mark Benioff out when I'm number two. That's the idea. So it's much more common. Even if you look at Salesforce, that's exactly how they started. They didn't just show up and say they were the kings of CRM. They started CRM for SMBs, very, very small businesses, and then gradually worked their way up the chain. And then when the big leader in the market at the time, which is company Siebel, when Siebel was in the middle of essentially taking themselves out of the market, Salesforce then came in and took over the whole market and now they own the whole thing. 
So starting in a segment is actually a pretty good way to do it. The other thing that's cool about it is that if I say I'm a CRM for quick service restaurants, you know what a CRM is. I don't have to explain it. It's like a shorthand. You're like, oh, I know what a CRM is all about, but you're for quick. Well, what do you got that's cool for quick serve restaurants? So it's this nice kind of quick way when Snowflake comes up and says, we're a data warehouse for the cloud. I know what a data warehouse is. And so I can kind of imagine what it is. Again, I'm pointed in the right direction. The last style is where you're creating a whole new category. And that's where you look at it and you're like, mm, I'm not really this and I'm not really that. And you look at all the existing market categories and you're like, none of this works for me. Like I position in any of these and it gets people pointed in the wrong direction. And now I got no choice. I'm going to have to build something. And so this one's the hardest style of positioning because, you know, you have to start by evangelizing the problem. Customer education needed. That's, yeah, it's customers really hard. It's a hard need stuff. To, we need to evangelize the problem because if you knew you had the problem, then the category of solutions would already exist. So first I got to convince you you have the problem. Then I got to sort of establish this category and then I get permission to position myself as the leader in it. And if I did it well, I would have established the category in a way that it'd be very hard for anybody to come in and get me. The problem is in practice, that's actually super hard to do. And so the history of Silicon Valley teaches us that often category creators get right at the moment the category starts getting interesting and adopted, get taken out by fast followers. That's why it's MySpace versus Facebook. It's Ask Jeeves or AltaVista versus Google. It's BlackBerry versus Apple. We know this, right? So category creation, sometimes there's no other choice, but you got to have, you know, patient, deep-pocketed investors going to take a long time to establish the category. And then you got to be really careful about the intense competition that's going to happen at the moment the category emerges. I find that startup founders often think that they need to go that third route because they see their innovation as so revolutionary. And oftentimes it is, but it's much easier to take that middle road, what you call the big fish, little pond, you know, Take a frame of reference that people understand what it means and then carve off a piece of that. Just can, start there. Yeah, the exactly. idea is we're not going to live there forever. And so what you get instead is people saying, oh, my God, they'll be looking at these companies that are 300, 400 million revenue. And they'll say they're creating a category. So that's what we should do. But even those companies, if you look back at what they were doing when they were small, it wasn't what they were doing. <laughs> and what I'm getting in my business is a lot of people that attempt to do this category creation and then it fails. And then they come to me and they wasted a year or two years trying to make a category a thing when there's a perfectly acceptable category that exists right now, that it'd be so much easier to sell around that and get your wedge into the market, use that to establish your beachhead and then grow from that and worry about what your ultimate category is going to be later. Yep. So let's talk about what happens after positioning. And I think you have a book coming out on that topic real soon. So maybe we can get a sneak peek on what you'll be covering there. I do. I'm so excited. In the work that I do with clients, we do two things. We do the positioning and then we take the positioning and we translate it into a sales narrative, which is basically how do I tell the story of this thing, but not just any story, like a story that sells. And so when I wrote the first book, I kind of ended the book by saying, well, if you want to test your positioning, the easiest way to do that is to turn it into a sales pitch and let's test it on qualified prospects and see if it works. 
And I think I had one page, like maybe your sales pitch could look like this. And the thing that I outlined there was not even the way I would do it, but it was the simplest way I could explain it. One page of the book, because I thought if I get into this sales pitch thing, it's going to be a whole other book. And then I worked with 200 clients. And so doing that, a few things became clear to me. One, we don't really know how to build a good sales pitch. That is not an accepted thing. There isn't kind of an accepted, this is what a good sales pitch structure looks like. And two, if you saw what most of the folks were doing instead, again, a lot of it looked like a, f a feature function product walkthrough and really wasn't going to work to translate our positioning. And so having done a whole bunch of these, I kind of felt like the world would benefit from somebody's take on this is how I think a sales pitch is structured. And so that's what the new book is about. If you wanted to build a sales pitch from scratch, you've got your positioning. I want to take this positioning, turn it into a story that's compelling, that works in a first sales call with a qualified prospect. This is how I would do it. So much like the first book was step-by-step-by-step, here's how you do positioning. This one's like step-by-step-by-step, -by -step -by -step, here's how you build this story. And it'll be out this fall, right? Yeah, I think the target is October, early October, late September in there. Who knows though, because books are funny. Take my money now. I want to <laughs> pre-order pre it. I know it's going to be awesome. I'm excited about it. I actually think it's going to be good, but it's hard to tell. This has been a complicated one. The last book was hard to write too. It's one thing to know how to do a thing. It's another thing to teach it to somebody and answer all the, but what about this? And what about that questions? And so... Yeah, I kind of thought I had this book two years ago, and there was a piece of it that I just couldn't explain. And two years later, I came back at it again. I said, oh, I think I got it this time. But I don't know if it's understandable or not until I get the thing out there and people read it. I'm sure it. it'll be great. And I can keep asking you questions because, you know, you have so much knowledge on this topic and I'm learning so much. But I want to be respectful of your time. So we're going to close out with our usual lightning round. Oh, God, I hate the lightning round. No, it's going to be fun. <laughs> oh, fun. Yeah. That's what they always say. Then they ask me some weird esoteric thing. Like, what was your favorite cartoon when you were a kid? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me quickly cross out that question. <laughs> Good. <laughs> this is getting better already. What book, newsletter, or podcast do you find yourself recommending most often? I really think Lenny's doing something magic over there. I've not come across anything like that before since I got first introduced to him, he reached out to me and asked me to write a guest post on positioning. And I had heard of his thing, but I wasn't subscribed. And so then I subscribed and I was like, what the heck? <laughs> this thing is amazing. I think his podcast is amazing. Like I, I'm in awe of that thing. Absolutely. I'm in agreement with you on that. Any productivity hacks that you've learned along the way to allow you to create so much, work with so many companies, write your book, et cetera? I say no to a lot of stuff. That was a hard lesson for me to learn. And particularly as, you know, when you switch into consultant, you kind of feel like you got to say yes to everybody that shows up. And I've got to the point now where I say no to about 90% of the people that call me. I'm really into the hard qualify. I've got a very long list of qualification questions and you got to meet them all or else I'm like, nah, we shouldn't do it. There's probably somebody better you can work with. So there's that. And then I've gotten better recently at blocking giant chunks on my calendar to do actual work and not get sucked into doing calls all day, every day, which I could easily do. Um, but yeah, if somebody could just solve my email problem for me, then life would be perfect. But email is the big pain for me right now. 
Yeah. Well, I'm very grateful that you said yes to me. I really appreciate that. Who's a, a mentor of yours that's had a significant impact in your career? Oh, well, people used to ask me that question and I used to say, you know what? I don't really have any mentors. Coming through tech, I didn't have any mentors. It's a funny thing to say because that seems weird. But since I went to, into consulting, I was so lucky um, speaking at a conference and I met this guy, Bob Mesta. He's kind of one of the fathers of jobs to be done and worked directly with Clay Christensen on the original research. And he's just a super big brain. And I don't know if he knows it, but he's been a big mentor to me trying to get my head around how to do consulting in a sustainable, better way. And so every once in a while, I'll get stuck on a thing. And he's my guy. I like text him. I'm like, ah, I'm doing this thing, Bob, what do I do? <laughs> Bob's always got smart things to say when I text him. So yeah, he's had a big impact on my consulting career, actually. I just Googled him and underneath his profile, the people also search for, you're one of them. So <laughs> you're connected cosmically. <laughs> if you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose? This is my weird one. So enjoy it. <laughs> historical figure, who would I choose? I'm in kind of a weird mood about death right now. And I know this isn't what you want, but this is not a historical figure. But if I could have coffee with anybody that's no longer with us, there's an old boss of mine at IBM that passed away somewhat recently and I would go have coffee with her. I like that answer. I'm going to put links to the book, your website, and all the other links in the show notes. But is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Is there any way that people can help you out in any way? Feel free to close us out. Right now, I'm really heads down thinking about this new book. So if anybody's interested in a new book, there's two ways to sort of keep up to date on that news. One... The only social network I'm really active on right now is LinkedIn. I used to do a lot on Twitter, but Twitter's weird now. So you can follow me on LinkedIn. And then if you go on my website, there's a tab there called books. And so I do have a mailing list. I hate email, but I do have a mailing list that I'm building right now. Anybody who wants early access to the book can sign up there. Well, April, thank you so, so much. Really enjoyed this. I'm definitely looking forward to that new book and maybe we'll have you on again, hopefully when that comes out to talk on, on that topic. So thanks. Talk to you soon. For sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. 